uh, in essence where uh, I got my start. Uh, Harvest was uh, very instrumental in helping us launch as our, our parent church. And uh, so uh, that's been, we actually, I was thinking about it, we actually, our core team probably stood down here uh, about 11 or 12 years ago and uh, as this church sent us out uh, to plant that church. So it's sweet to be back here and uh, I've gotten to know uh, your pastor well and I uh, love him very dearly and uh, am uh, privileged to, uh, to call him a friend and, uh, and a colleague in ministry. So I want to share a word with you this morning and uh, I, I hope that it will speak to you uh, individually but I also hope that it will speak to you corporately uh, as a church as well. Now what it, does Keith, uh, I noticed the spotlight is kind of here, does Keith kind of stand back here and just just kind of, I think I'm more like that, uh, if you go to the Salisbury Zoo, that, uh, that panther that, that goes back and forth. That's a, I kind of like to pace when I preach, so uh, if I get out of the spotlight, I'm sorry. I, he's kind of a spotlight kind of guy, though, isn't he? And, uh, but, and he hangs around with a, a lot of spotlight type of folks, Mark Swope and those, those type of... And it's, it's funny that Mark would come up here and his first analogy has to do with food. Um, because every time I see that guy, he's eating. And, uh, and I like to give him a hard time. He, uh, he gives me a hard time. One time he, he messaged on Facebook and asked me if I was getting paid to do restaurant reviews because I was always out at a restaurant somewhere sometimes. So, but uh, good to know some of you guys for a long while, and I uh, hope to get to know some of you well just meeting you today. But I want to talk to you about an idea uh, that I experience and have experienced over the last decade or so of ministry and uh, there seems to be this underlying current, if you will, in the Western church where, um, and, and, and I think we're, we're sold this in many ways, in many forms, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. But there's this kind of this mindset that if, if you will just come to Christ, if you will accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, everything is just going to be kind of peaches and cream. You're going to have more health, you're going to have more wealth, you're going to have more prosperity. And, uh, and, I, and I think that that is not only a false gospel, but what that has done is it has created this kind of undercurrent that has been very damaging uh, to people's faith. Uh, I noticed as a, as a pastor, one of, the, one of the most undermining things that would happen when we would lead somebody to Christ, we would baptize them, we would begin to disciple them, and then what would happen, and, and this was the point where, their, where their, their faith journey kind of became jeopardized, is that something traumatic, something out of the ordinary, some sort of adversity would hit their life or press in on their life. And all of a sudden, they had to come face to face with the questions of how could a good and loving and just and sovereign God allow something difficult and traumatic to happen in my life? And it raises all kinds of questions, and I've seen so many people walk away from the faith because they expect and believe this God that we serve to be this kind of cosmic dispensing machine of good things and that, that there's going to be no trials and no hardships and no reality checks as we journey with Christ in, in this human flesh and in this broken and sinful world. I know for me, uh, God has used uh, what I would describe as chaos, so many times to push me into places that I wouldn't otherwise be. And the, the challenge and the thought that I want to kind of leave you with this morning is that, that when things happen, and they will happen, adverse things, unexpected things, uh, difficult things, is that when those things happen, oftentimes God has a purpose and a plan. 
In Romans 8.28, it, it, it is essentially probably one of the most comforting passages of Scripture in all the Bible. It says that God is working together for the good of those, all of those who love Christ and are called according to His purpose. And I know Keith is very scholarly and, 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 and lives in that world of academia. I'm kind of his polar opposite. I think that's why we, we work so well together. So I just want to tell you that the, the Greek and the Hebrew in Romans 8.28, when it says all things work together for good, when you translate the, the, the Greek and Hebrew, what it really means is all things. <laughs> all things. Now what that means is, is that nothing has come in contact with your life that God doesn't have the sovereignty to bring something good out of. That doesn't mean that it's going to feel good. That doesn't mean it's going to seem good. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to understand what it is you're going through. But that God's grace meets life's chaos. And that oftentimes the chaos of our lives, both individually and corporately, are the very tool that God uses to get us from point A to point B. God's about a mission. I don't know if you're, if you're aware of that, but God's got a purpose and a plan. He's, he's about his, his business. He wants the gospel of Jesus Christ propagated to the world. He wants it carried to the uttermost parts. He's redeeming mankind. Jesus went to the cross. He, he shed his blood. He paid a sacrificial redemptive price to, for all of humanity's sin, for anybody to call upon his name to receive salvation. God is in and about his business. Now, the problem is you and I are oftentimes in and about our business. See, we, we, we like to understand who God is and then plan our own lives in many situations and instances. And oftentimes, God wants to take us from where we are to some place that we wouldn't normally go. Because we like to get in little pockets of comfort, little comfort zones, little places that feel familiar. And, you know, and it's, so, it's so interesting because we don't like... How many of you guys come to church every Sunday and sit in the same place that you sit every week? Most everybody. And see that, you know, if you want to get spicy, if you want to get jiggy with it, why don't you just sit somewhere else next week? You know, because it is, we, we are, what, what I've discovered is that we are creatures of habit. We like doing what is comfortable. How many of you guys go to the same coffee shop, get the same coffee drink, ride the same route to work when there's multiple routes you could go? I mean, we are creatures of comfort. And the gospel oftentimes isn't comfortable. It's, it's a dangerous gospel. It's an it's a epic story that God is telling. God is not safe, but He is good. So what that means is that no matter what we're going through, we can understand it from the perspective of God's redemptive nature. God wants to do something in us and through us. Now, what I've discovered as I've looked at the Scriptures is that again, God's people oftentimes find themselves in these places of complacency. The scriptures that I want to use today are going to be coupled in Matthew and the book of Acts. You don't have to follow along. I think I'm going to have them on the screen. Maybe, maybe not. So I don't know if we've got them or not, but I sent them to Keith. So if they're not there, just write him a nasty email <laughs> and tell him this sermon was totally messed up and uh, you couldn't follow along. But So uh, look with me at Matthew chapter uh, 28, verse 19. When we... Uh, planted our church. This was one of the, the, the driving forces scripturally of our church. We believe that God gave us a mission as a church. Now this is kind of interesting. You've, you've probably seen this a lot of times. And again, familiarity tends to breed contempt. 
So just because you don't see, you've seen it before, I want, I want to ask you to look at it with fresh eyes and with a fresh lens and with a fresh understanding. I want to try to teach you something I believe God's in the business of doing, which is creating some grace in our chaos. Matthew 28, 19, International Standard Version says, Therefore, as you go... I just want to stop there for a minute and ask you, what is the implication of as you go? Now, let me just back up for a minute. Jesus has uh, been crucified. He's been resurrected. There's about a 40-day period that's going by where Jesus is appearing to his disciples. He's teaching. He's sharing things about the kingdom, the Bible says. And he's working with his disciples. And in this particular instance, he's about to ascend to heaven to be with his father. And he says, therefore, as you go. Now, my understanding is as you go, the implication is that you're going somewhere. Jesus is sending you somewhere. And the question ought to raise in your mind, where, where has God sent me or where is God sending me? As you go is an implication of going. He says, disciple people in all nations. All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, teaching them to obey my, my commands as well. Now, it's kind of interesting because if you, if you look at the Bible and you read the Bible, one of the things that can be confusing about reading the Bible is oftentimes the Bible isn't put in chronological order. There's a, there's a great, uh, uh, I, I hate to say rendition, there, there's a great uh, composition of the Bible that's out. I think it's called the Books of the Bible. And what they've done is they've taken the New Testament books and they've put them in chronological order. And it's an amazing way to, to study and read the Scriptures because oftentimes when, when we look at the Scriptures, things aren't in chronological order. You open up the, the Bible and you start the book of Genesis and it says, In the beginning. But then as you kind of really get into the story, you realize that that, that wasn't the beginning. You know, you've got to go to, to John and realize that, you know, before the beginning was the Word. And you're like, what? You know, the, the beginning is in the middle. So, I mean, it, it, the Bible can be confusing if you don't understand it contextually. So, what I want to share with you today, some things that are going on, not only things that are going on, but the specific span of time that they're happening. Now, this is about 40 days Jesus has shown up and he says, listen, I want you to go into all the nations. I want you to baptize them. I want you to teach them to obey my commands. Now, Acts 1, Paul's writing, verse 1 and this, he's talking about this period of time. He says, In my first book I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Now listen, he says, During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them. Now, now, I want you to kind of home in on this part. He commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. Now, what gift did the Father promise? Come on, now, I know Keith's taught you better than this. What, what was the Father going to send? He's going to send the Holy Spirit. So, he, Jesus is instructing, he's saying, listen, don't leave Jerusalem until my Father sends you the Holy Spirit. So that's pretty clear, right? I mean, we might not, they might not have understood what that was going to look like or when that was going to happen, but they had clear instruction. Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends the Holy Spirit. So he says, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates 
and times. Now it's kind of interesting because even after Jesus' death and resurrection, they're still asking about the restoration of just what? Just Israel. Now, Jesus has come to him and said, I want you to take my restoration project, if you will, no pun intended. I want you to take my restoration project, not just to Jerusalem, but to Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But they're focused on Jerusalem. So the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But listen, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me where? Everywhere. He says, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so are you tracking so far? So the message is, Jesus has been crucified, he's overcome the grave, he's been resurrected. He said, listen, now this is what I want you to do. He said, I want you to wait until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. Are we clear on that? Okay, then once that happens, I want you to take the gospel message to Judea, out of Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want, you, I want you to take it somewhere. Seems clear enough. Now, you go fast forward a little bit, and you understand that they've gone through this amazing... You know, it's kind of interesting. They've gone through this amazing chaos. We used to do Easter services... And, you know, Easter is one of the most highly attended church days uh, of the calendar year. And it was amazing. We, we, would, we would have a, like a wooden cross like you guys. And we would, we would, you know, the weeks leading up, you'd have, you know, all the, the, the death stuff on it. And then on Easter Sunday, you'd decorate with flowers and it'd be symbolic of resurrection. And everybody would dress up and you put on your best outfits. And everybody's got this hope. And you would have these little, you know, Jesus, Jesus is risen. And somebody responded, he's risen indeed. And it was all this uplifting and upbeat stuff. But for these folks, the first Easter was chaotic. They were confused, they were scared, they were lacking understanding, they had no clue. It was nothing like we understand Easter to be. Chaos. But in the middle of the chaos, God begins to pour His grace. Now it's kind of interesting because when we get in our comfort zones, I believe that God is in the business. He has the ability, He has the authority, He has the means to push us out of those comfort zones when we don't want to go on our own. Now, I don't like to be pushed. I really don't. I, my prayer has always been, God, please don't push me. I want to go willingly. Please don't push me. I hate being pushed. When I was in the third grade, somebody pushed me, knocked me down into a bookcase. I got a concussion. I still got a lump on the back of my head. I said, God, please don't push me, okay? Help me go on my own. But see, oftentimes, even in my earnest attempts to say, God, wherever you lead, I'll go that there is some false humility in there, and that reality is I do like my comfort zones just like everybody else. So we look at Acts chapter 8, and this is kind of interesting. Now, before we get into Acts chapter 8, what I want to point out is that if you were to read, uh, and I haven't done the research on this, so, so just humor me a little bit, but if you were to read the Bible from Acts chapter 1 all the way to Acts chapter 8, I'm going to say I could probably do it in, in, in 40 minutes. I'm I'm guessing. I'm getting, it wouldn't take me long. But, and, and that's one of the things that can be confusing as you study the Scriptures because what is going on here is we read eight chapters in, in 40 minutes. A lot has conspired. Most theologians agree that by the time you get to chapter 8 that there has been maybe four to six years that have gone by. Now, you say, well, why is that important? Well, listen, 
Acts chapter 4. Those who have been... Uh, I'm sorry, let's back up. Let's back up a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, uh, Acts chapter uh, 1, and then let's go to Acts chapter 8, 1. Now, this is, and Saul approved of his execution. What's going on here at Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 1, is that there's, there's a, a guy named Stephen. You guys remember him? He was one of the first New Testament martyrs. He stood up and gave this testimony about Christ. People got so enraged, they said, let's kill him. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 is where we see that unfolding. And Saul approved of his execution. Now Saul later became the apostle Paul. But Saul at this point isn't converted. He isn't a Christian. He's persecuting the church. He's standing there. The Bible says he was holding the coach for the people who actually stoned Stephen to death. And it says, listen to what the scriptures say. It says, and, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all what? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, Samaria except the apostles. Now, what's so significant about this in chapter 8, verse 1, is that this is possibly five or six years later. And what's so kind of interesting about this is that Jesus has commanded them to go into Judea and Samaria, but the Bible says they are still in Jerusalem. Now, if you backtrack and you go back, you know, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come. They waited. The Spirit came, and Peter stood up with, with great pronouncement. He preached the gospel, and thousands got saved. And, and you know what they did in essence? They launched the first megachurch. I mean, look, if the Bible says that they believed and they were being obedient to the word, I mean, this was a pastor's dream. Let's, let's have a building fund. Let's hire some staff. I mean, we've got thousands of believers here. Jerusalem's really what God wants anyway, isn't it? I mean, did he really mean go all the way out of the city? Let's just stay here. It's comfy. We've got lots of believers. We've got lots of security. We're not oppressed. There's not much opposition. There's not much, um, you know, this is the same coffee I like to drink every day. I, I like going this way. This is all so comfy to me. 8-1, they're still in Jerusalem. So what does God do when we won't move? God moves us. And see, the, 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 the thing that we have to learn to do is not get resentful of, and not, not get resistant and get, get resentful. And, and, and what comes out of resentment and resistance is this question of why. When, when, I, was, when I was 16 years old, if you guys know my story, I didn't grow up in a, a Christian home. I grew up in a, in a, a non-believing pagan home. I, I say non-believing. I, I, we would say that we believed in God. We, we didn't, there was no fruit of the Spirit, if you will. There was, there was no salvation. There was no redemption. We acknowledge God, but you know, James says even, even the demons acknowledge God and shudder. I mean, so that, that doesn't account for much. So in, in, in all fashions and facets, we were uh, just kind of a lost family. And we acted as, as lost people, would you would expect them to act. There, there is no governing of your spirit. So the, there was all kinds of things going on in our family that shouldn't have been. Uh, my parents' marriage was in trouble. Um, you know, there was drinking. Uh, there was um, immoral behavior. Um, you know, there was cussing and foul language. And, and uh, one particular day, as this kind of came to a crescendo, I, was, I just started driving. I was like 16 years old. And uh, my mother, you know, I was an only child. My mother, I think, in retrospect, was kind of going, starting to go through a little bit of that empty nest syndrome type of thing. 
and uh, she was getting kind of clutchy and clingy and wanting to hold on to me and kind of control. I was, I was becoming a young man. I wanted to kind of spread my wings and fly and do what teenagers do and just didn't want to hang out with mom and dad much anymore. Wanted to go out and party and carouse and drink and have a good time and be with my friends. And this particular day was in, in June and uh, we were having an argument. I was uh, late for work. I was working uh, as a lifeguard at the time. It was one of my first jobs. And we were arguing, and, and I'll never forget the words that I said to her. They, they rang in my mind. You say, you say, Ree, what is your evangelical base? I mean, what, what is it that drives uh, your essence of, of wanting to be evangelical and to reach people for Christ? I mean, I'm about to tell you one, one of the, the, the driving factors. And these words ring in my mind, uh, even as a 39-year-old man. We were arguing. And I looked her in her eyes. I was getting ready to hop in my truck. I pointed my finger at her in, in, in indignation. And I said, listen to me. I said, I don't care if I ever see you again. You can go straight to hell. And I got in my car and I went to work. About 3.30 in the afternoon, I'm sitting uh, in my lifeguard stand. Now, this particular stand that I was sitting faced the entrance uh, of the pool that, that I worked in, and people would always come in the entrance. So I had the vantage point of everybody who came in that pool. About 3.30 in the afternoon, and I saw my father walk through the door. And in that moment, I knew something was dramatically wrong. My father should be at work, and, and if he wasn't at work, he had no business being at my work. Something was up. He comes, he says, look, we've got to go. He says, your mother's been in a car accident. When I got to PRMC 30 minutes later, I said, we're sorry. I walked in to a hospital room where my mother lay with an intubation tube in her mouth, down her throat, dead. On a, on a hospital table. <clears throat> now, you say that's tragic, and it is. But I don't know if that hadn't happened, if I'd be standing here today. You say, is there a bright side? The bright side is that I don't know if that hadn't happened, if there wasn't some question in my mind, even this day, about my mother's eternal security, I don't know that I would have a ministry. So is it possible that God can take something extremely tragic and redeem it for the good? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and, and see, the, the, what happens is when something like that happens, the instinct is to say, God, why? Why me? Well, why her? Why us? Why now? And you got all these why questions that invariably lead to nowhere other than more why questions. And one of the things we've got to be in the discipline of doing is not asking why, but asking what. God, wh what, what do you want me to do? And how? How do you want me to respond? God, what are you trying to accomplish? What do you want done here? How can I be a part of your redemptive plan? I mean, these are the better, better questions. Now, let's forward along a little bit further to Acts 4. Now, the church has been persecuted. And you say, Reed, do you really think that that still happens today? And I do. Some of you guys have sat under the leadership of Pastor Lee Hugart. Have you not? He was an interim pastor here for a while. He was a pastor of a church down in Louisiana when Katrina came down there and totally destroyed their church. And to hear him describe it is that the, a congregational family such as this was immediately dispersed and scattered. You say, well, read that. That's just one example. Let me give you another. I've got a colleague and a friend who planted a church in Las Vegas in 2004. 
Things were going extremely well. Sin City. I mean, this is, if you, if you want to, if you want God's redemptive grace to be put on display, what better place than Sin City? He goes down there, he's reaching prostitutes and mob dealers and all kinds of, of, of high money, high rollers, people that are far from God, coming to God. He, they launch with like 300 people. They grow to church like 600 in a year or so. A couple years later, they're running about 900. And then fast forward along to, to 2007. Anybody remember what happened in 2007? You, you do. You, I'm, I'm just, it's a broad question. In 2007, we had the economic downturn. The, the housing market flipped on its head. And all of a sudden, houses that were worth 500000 were worth two fifty. And all of a sudden, houses that were worth one hundred and fifty dollars were worth seventy five. And he said that, that this pastor said that in... In six months' time, they lost 300 church members that had lost jobs in Las Vegas and were forced to move somewhere else. He said, over the last three years, he said, we've gone from 900 people back down to 300. So he, he says, but listen, here's the good news. He said, he said we baptized most of them, we discipled them, we, get, we, get, we planted the gospel seed in them. He said, and now they have taken that gospel seed and it's been scattered to many places all over the nation and even around the world. Because God is interested in His Word being propagated beyond our little sphere of influence, beyond our little sphere of comfort. God wants His gospel everywhere. And when God pushes us out of our comfort zone, please let's not be resistant or resentful. Acts 8, 4, listen. It says, those who have been scattered did what? They preached the Word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. So they're finally getting to Samaria. Jesus had instructed them to do it seven years ago. Now they're finally getting to Samaria and proclaim Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. Now look, I'm not going to tell Pastor Keith, but how many of you guys pay, pay close attention really to what he says? No? <laughs> I mean, like, like this, is, this is a pastor's dream right here. He's led a bunch of people to Christ and they're listening to him. It, it, so it says... It says they were listening, pay, pay, not only listen, but pay close attention. It says with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. I mean, this was, this was first century Benny Hinn. I mean, people were, I mean, but for real, I mean, people were, were, being, were being healed. It says so there, great, there was great joy in the city. The city was glad the church was there. I mean, it, the, the church wasn't a leech that was just sucking tax advantage and asking for money. The, the, the community actually appreciated it being there. Imagine that. So now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. So essentially, the, the, the city has fallen into idolatry, more or less giving divine attributes to this sorcerer. It says they followed him uh, because they he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And they followed Philip everywhere astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now let me ask you something. If you're Philip at this point, what would you do? 
I mean, just think about it for a minute. I mean, just get, in, get, in, get into the context. You're, 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 a, you're a preacher. You're a pastor. You're a prophet. You've gone out. You've, God said, proclaim my gospel. You proclaim it. People are getting saved radically. Sorcerers are coming to Christ. The town's glad you're there. They, they want to give you the key to the city. People are obeying and listening intently on what you're teaching. What do you do? I, I mean, I, I'm just being honest. I'd like to be transparent. I think if it were me... I'd go back into building fund campaign mode. Hey guys, you know, let's let's we need a little we need a separate checking account so we can put the building fund money in there because it's time to build Samaria's first mega church, Crystal City Part Two. I mean, let's do this here because it feels good. It's comfortable, man. It you know, these are my friends now. We have dinner. We have small group together. Our kids are in the children's program. You know, it feels good. Acts 26. God says, no, I'm not content for you to be content or comfortable. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. This is now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he's saying, Philip, okay, you know, that's great and and and." Dandy and wonderful, my friend, but time to move on. And it's kind of interesting because we have this propensity to want to set up shop where it's comfortable. How, if you do a, do a little study uh, of Jesus in the New Testament where it says, and he pressed on towards Jerusalem, or he headed to Jerusalem. If Jesus would come to a town with his disciples, he would heal, he would teach, everybody would fall in love and say, at, at one point, it says the crowds try to grab him and take him by force to make him their king. So, man, we just, we just want to set up here. But Jesus said, no, he said, I got to go. I'm headed to Jerusalem. Why was he headed to Jerusalem? Because he had to climb on that cross. He had to spread his arms out. He had to shed his blood. That was why the Father had sent him. That was his mission. And the, and the question for you and I becomes, what is our Jerusalem? What is it that we're so keenly focused and, and, and honed in on that nothing can distract us from going there? Not, not uh, bad uh, adversities, not uh, uh, you know, uh, intent comfort. None of those things can hinder us from our Jerusalem. But what is our Jerusalem? He says, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down to Jerusalem, uh, to Gaza. So Philip started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. What? Now God wants us to cross socioeconomic barriers. Do you know that Sunday morning is one of the most segregated, racially segregated times of the week? White churches are predominantly white. Black churches are predominantly black. Hispanic churches are, are predominantly Hispanic. But yet God is instructing Philip to cross a socioeconomic border. Because God is less concerned about our comfort than He is our character. He says, look, your character should carry you to places that you're uncomfortable in. Look, you know, think about it. You know, in, in Revelation 4, John gives this vision of heaven, and he says, look, I saw every tribe. He said, I saw every uh, nation. I saw every tongue. Essentially, what he's saying is, I saw every socioeconomic group. Now, if we don't like worshiping together here on earth, if we show up in heaven, and, and, and it's a mixed crowd, how are we going to feel? 
I mean, is it really going to be heaven to us? I mean, I think we ought to get in the business of finding the, he- the heavenly realm of that in, in, in this life. I mean, there ain't going to be a white congregation in heaven or a black congregation. We're going to be together around the throne worshiping God. We're all going to have... It's, 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 it's so empirically important what, what God is teaching us here. And the question for you and I becomes, what comfort zone might you and I be stuck in? What comfort zone might you and I be stuck in? You know, it, 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 it raises... Or, or, or here's another question. Is, is, is the trial that I'm going through... Is the adversity, the difficulty, the, the, the thing that is pressing in on my life, is, is it possible that God may be using that to push me out into something else? You know, when you think about it, when I run into people who have, uh, you know, they, 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 they have a financial ministry. They, they minister to those who are in financial trouble. Typically, they've gone through financial trouble themselves. When I, when I find people who have a passion for those who have cancer, it's typically because they've battled cancer themselves. Is it, is it oftentimes the, 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 the most repulsive, the most difficult part about our life experience is, is the very part that God wants to use as our biggest ministry to other people. Could it be? So what do you do? Well, one of the things you've got to do is you've got to make discomfort a habit. You... I, you really, you really got to be disciplined to make discomfort a habit. You know, I was kind of uh, quasi-joking about sitting different places. I mean, try different things. Even little things will kind of broaden your, your, your muscles of, uh, of flexibility and risk and these kind of things. I love what Eleanor Roosevelt says. She said, do one thing every day that scares you. One, one commentator puts it this way. He says, do something that scares you every day. He says, the more we can make a habit of pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, the easier it becomes. Talk to a stranger at the bus stop. Tell a joke at work when you normally wouldn't. Send off that guest post. He says, you will build up confidence and resilience. You will start to know yourself as someone who takes risks and challenges themselves. Theodore Roosevelt he, he put it this way, and I love what he says here. He says, far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs even though checkered by failures, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory or defeat. Make discomfort a habit. Something else you say, well, read, I... I this is hard for me. I, 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 I'm one of these people. See, it's kind of interesting. We, we, we do these assessment tests when we're looking at potential church planters. And one of the areas that they have to, they have to, have to, have to rank very high on is this area of risk tolerance. Somebody who doesn't have a high risk tolerance won't make a great church planter. Now, what that teaches me is that we have varying degrees of risk tolerance. Some have more than others. You know, so you say, Reed, I'm not one of those people. I'm not like you. I, I don't have a, a, a big propensity for, for risk. I never have. I, I don't like it. It's, it's difficult. He, he, here's where you need to rest. This is where you need to come down. This is where you need to settle. And this is the reality, is that there is no such thing. Listen to me. There is no such 
thing as security outside a life lived in Christ. There's just not. The, the safest place to be is in the center of what God is instructing you to do. And if that's dangerous, that's the safest place to be. I read an article about a missionary who was on the run for his life. And uh, he got to this area. He was being persecuted and run, run through a forest. It was in the evening. He said he, the dogs were after him. He had just run to a point of exhaustion. He said there was a tree that had fallen over and created a burrow where the stump was up and, it, and the, the ground had, was concave underneath. He said, and I, I, I just kind of collapsed in there and fell in there and put my arms on the roots of that tree and prepared to wait for my uh, persecutors to come and kill me and I was going to die. He said, as I sat there and I got my breath, he said, a spider began to weave a web on the outside of that stump until about 45 minutes later, there was a complete spider's web covering the opening of that burrow. So before you know it, the, the, the uh, uh, persecutors show up and they're sitting there talking and one of them suggests maybe he's in this burrow and one of the other officers says, no, there's a spider's web here. If he had crawled in there, he would have broken that spider's web. Let's move on. And he goes on and he later writes, he says, he says, where God is, he says, where God is, he said, a spider web is like a wall. He said, but where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. There is no such thing as security outside a life in Christ. Helen Keller said, Helen Keller said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. I, lo I love that. She said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. She says, security does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. She said, avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than exposure. Undoubtedly, God wants us to reach more people. I told you that my, my mother's death was a part of the the intrinsic motivation I have to be evangelical in nature. That's why I want to strengthen churches and plant churches. It's why I want to share the gospel. It's why I wanted to see people discipled. I was uh, with... Um, de death has a way of kind of homing that in. I was with um, my, my, uh, my wife. Her, her father uh, uh, just passed away recently with cancer, and we just walked through that journey. And uh, we were leaving the hospital... Um, one night when he was uh, over at PRMC and we were coming out and I had my kids with me. My oldest, my oldest daughter was in 11th grade this year and uh, we come out and she runs into some of her classmates and uh, turns out that one of her classmates' father just a few minutes earlier had passed away with cancer like 30, 39, 40, 41 years old. And, I, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, my God. Because it, it conjured up all this stuff in me, because I'm like, this girl is about the age I was when this happened to me. And like, I'm just like, and now I'm 40, and like, I'm still processing that junk. And I'm just thinking about this little girl and these kids and this wife. And I'm thinking about this man. I'm thinking, I, I don't even know this man. Did he know Christ? Where is he now? Is he, does he have eternal security? And I'm just, and I'm just sitting there. And I'm, oh, my God. You know, I cannot be complacent about sharing this good news I have. I cannot be complacent about uh, planting. You know, the, uh, on the Delmarva Peninsula, 
on the Delmarva Peninsula, we have determined in the Eastern Baptist Association, the eastern shore of Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia, to be our Jerusalem. And, and within our Jerusalem, there is about uh, a little less than, did you know there's a little less than a million people on the shore? Uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. It, it's a large geographic region. And but now here's the thing. If you were to take our Baptist churches and fill them to capacity, we would be reaching a, a, about less than 1% of that population. If you were to, to, to multiply that and just say, okay, let's get outside of our denomination and let's, go, uh, let's just go evangelical churches as a whole and fill them to capacity, it would be about a little less than 3%. That only 46% of the population of Maryland, Delaware, Virginia's Eastern Shore claim to have any affiliation or relationship with an evangelical church. That means more than one out of every other person that you come in contact with uh, potentially doesn't know Christ as their Savior and are headed towards an eternal hell. <laughs> I mean, that is nothing to be complacent about. That is nothing to shy away from risk on. And I just want to encourage you this morning that whatever you may be going through, God's in control. And that God may very well not only... The God's not only in control, but He may very well be using this crucible, this life, life crucible, if you will, to, to propel you and, and propult you into a place that you wouldn't normally otherwise be. And I just want to encourage you to ask the better questions, not why. Not why did this happen. God, what do you, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? Where do you want me to be? God, you know, th those are the better questions. So I want to pray and uh, ask the praise band to come. And as they do, uh, if you need prayer this morning, I want to make myself available to you. If you sense that God may be calling you into the mission field, I, I would encourage you just to acknowledge that publicly. And um, if there's just any way that we can serve you this morning, uh, I want to do that. So let me pray, and then, uh, then our band can lead us. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for the cross. Uh, we thank you for the good news. The good news that we were, while we were yet enemies of yours, that you displayed your great love by sending your son Jesus Christ to die an atoning and sacrificial death on our behalf so that any of us who would call upon your name, confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we could be eternally, eternally saved. God, we thank you. If there be one person here this morning struggling, I pray that you would just... Give them an added measure of the presence of your Holy Spirit. That you would just be a source of all comfort and peace. That you would help us ask the better questions. That you would help us find security in what it is you've called us to in no other place. God, we pray that you would send workers into the, into the harvest field. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.